You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Good morning. We're glad that you're here with us today. I want to uh, mention that uh, we've been through the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to wrap it up today. So if you have your Bible, open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And where we've been on this journey so far is we've looked at chapter 1 and the uh, false letter had gotten written to the people in Thessalonica. And their peace was shattered. They were shaken. They thought that their attempt to get gathered back to the Lord, to be returned with the Lord, that the Lord had already returned and they had missed out. And they were afraid of that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we looked at all the energy of the world that was happening seemed to be surrounded by the momentum of the Antichrist, that he had all the power, he had all the signs and wonders, he had all the following of the people of the world, he had you know, the momentum behind him, and yet that power comes with a warning label. Then we looked at the source of a real investment that we can have in prayer, that prayer empowers our activity, and we can have true peace in God. And Paul writes uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 now to these people who are being persecuted, how to find strength, like real strength, real power, real energy that lasts, not fake power that has its high and then it's low, but real power that lasts for their time of need and endure life until Christ returns. Now, uh, this week I've got an energy drink called Rockstar, and uh, anybody in here need some energy? Anybody here? Uh, let's see, Bruce, I gave you one before, so let's go right here. All right, incoming, heads up. There we go. Good job, Christina. Way to duck out of the way. But you might need some energy. Now, I wouldn't open that right away because, you know, that thing might spray all over the place. But uh, you get a little energy. Anything like Rockstar, uh, there was a situation in Thessalonica where people in the church, these are believers, had a Rockstar mentality. They, they felt like they were entitled to life. How many of you have ever been driving down the freeway and your car died or you ran out of gas or... Uh, your transmission failed, and you could only be like in a low gear or an idle. Any of you ever done that? You just driven, yeah, and you just, it's the worst feeling in the world because all the momentum, all the cars are going by you, and you're stuck, and you're like, should I try to like get out? Should I try to get over the side of the road? Well, like, how do I do that without getting hit? Can someone please help me? You're trying to see if your cell phone has enough charge to call somebody and get some help because you're stuck. You're stuck on the freeway. All this momentum is happening, but you find yourself in idle you find yourself stuck. And there are times in the church that you and I feel that way. That whether it was a hurt or a habit or a hang up or whether it's just an unwillingness to serve, you and I find ourselves getting stuck. Everybody has a momentum and we kind of sit there and we go, hey, I want to just throw my tow rope to somebody else's energy, somebody else's spirituality, somebody else's momentum, and I'll hook onto them, and they'll just carry me along. They'll kind of, you know, help me along, but I, I'm really not interested in getting out of idle and getting back into drive. But there are times in our lives where we do get stuck. But there's good news for us today that Paul gives us some secrets in how to get unstuck in our spiritual life when we find ourselves unwilling to serve. And Rockstar is, you know, kind of interesting because that's the thing that was happening in the church. They thought that the Lord had already potentially returned. And so there were people who said, I'm going to stop working. I'm going to stop doing anything because, it, you know, maybe the Lord's going to come back at any time. Or if he's already returned, then why should we work so hard? And they have this Rockstar mentality. And Rockstar mentality means entitlement. That's where you and I would say, listen, you know, think about a Rockstar. 
They expect to have like great security. They expect to have their obstacles through a crowd or anything else removed. They expect to get free food. And they expect to say, listen, when I want to jump into the crowd and crowd surf, the whole crowd should carry me around and deliver me back to the stage where I can be the center of the universe, right? That's the idea of a rock star. But we live in a culture that trains you and I to be rock stars, that without understanding duty and responsibility and, and being part of being a contributor, that we're to consume. And so we have a whole culture that's training our young people to just be consumers, be consumers. Let everybody else take responsibility for you. And Paul is calling the church in Thessalonica and us back to a people that respond like the God that we believe in. And so if you have your Bible, open with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. It says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So what problem is Paul addressing in this passage of Scripture? If you're taking notes today, you'll find out that some of the people in the church were being idle and disruptive. So they were stuck. They were like that car in idle. They were not in drive. They were not engaged. They said, I want to come. I want to consume. And I want, you know, I'm just going to be stuck. Verse 6 said, there are ones among you. Keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. And there were ones who were idle and they were disruptive. And isn't that interesting in your workplace or in your uh, classroom or in other areas that you find you might even have a child. They can be idle, which means they're not contributing, but worse, they're being disruptive. They're actually contributing to disruption in your workplace or in your family or in your life where you feel like, listen, somebody came along who was a freeloader and it totally interrupted my life, this piece of my life. They've brought problems that now I have to deal with. They've brought resources I don't have to give to them, and they're not contributing much, but they're basically freeloading. Well, the freeloaders that were happening in Thessalonica also expected the leaders in the church to do the work for them. They felt like, listen, our job is just to be stalled, to be an idol, and to be carried along, that we should just 
throw our tow rope along the leaders. The leaders would be the paid people or the full-time people, whether they were lay people or paid or recognized in the church. They're the ones who are supposed to do all the work, and we're supposed to receive all the benefit. In fact, there were ones there who said, listen, uh, we're not even going to work. We expect the church to feed us. And they were freeloading off people who would want to, out of a good heart, help them, and they were just freeloading. Paul's addressing this problem. You know, like a rock star, they just expected the church provide a secure experience for us, um, take care of our family, teach our children everything they need to know, and that's your job to do. It's not ours, and what happens, they get stuck. They're, they're an idol. So their children receive instruction from the Lord at church, but they don't ever have a discussion about the Lord in the home. Because the church is in motion. We are the church. And they were stuck. So like a rock star, they expected that. They expected to just be carried along like anything else. But one of our values here at Sun Grove Church, and I hope this is becoming more and more a value in your heart, it's certainly the value of the majority here, but a value at Sun Grove Church is this, that we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. So as you see people driving by out here, we exist organizationally as a corporate body of believers in Jesus Christ who say, like Christ did, we will humble ourselves and become obedient even in the midst of persecution or potential death. We're going to become obedient and serve and love the world like Christ did until we are gathered back together with him. We exist as a church for the world. It's not that you just come here and you experience something, but that really we come together and we say, as the church, we exist for people outside these walls and we care about them and the needs of our community and the needs of the families around us. We exist for the world. But these people in the church of Thessalonica were unwilling to work. Please understand this. They were unwilling. That's a heart condition, right? Unwilling. I will not engage my will on the inside to work. This is not the person who says, hey, I'm willing to work. I just can't find a job. I'm not saying I'm jobless because I'm not willing. They're saying, listen, I have put in applications. I'm doing this. They're not talking about somebody who's outside of a job right now who's willing to work. They're talking about somebody who in their heart condition says, I won't. I don't see any need to. That's, that's not really me. I'm not one of those kind of people. They're unwilling. It's a heart condition. It happens there in verse 10. They were unwilling to work. This is also not the person who's willing to volunteer or serve, but they just need some instruction. They need to be placed on a team. They need to know what the needs are so they can actually get involved. This is, again, the person who is unwilling. It's the person who's entitled, who thinks it's the duty of the paid staff or the lay leaders to do all the work of the church, to do the outreach, to do the inreach, to love, to care, to do everything. And they are not willing to contribute to any of the solutions. They just want to be supported. So how do you identify this kind of person? This person is pretty easy to identify because they're the person who always expects to be heard. They may never bring a solution to a problem, but they've got to tell you what the problem is. Hey, just got to let you know, here's the problem I expect to be heard, but they don't want to contribute. This would be the person who oftentimes demands support from you or from a, a, a pastoral staff or some other lay leader in the church who comes to you and just says, I just need you to hear me and I need you to support me, but then they never do what a spiritual advisor advises. 
You might be mentoring somebody, and the person that you're mentoring says, you know, I'm totally willing to be mentored. I'm just not willing to do anything the mentor tells me to do to increase the spiritual contribution in my life. They're pretty easy to identify. They'll even use at times spiritual guilt to get others to codependently rescue them. They'll get involved in their hurt, their habit, their hang-up on some level, and they will look for other people who they know, I can take advantage of the goodness of that person's character and their heart. And they will just codependently help me continue to be unwilling to work. Well, not only were they unwilling to work, and not only were they expected the leaders of the church to do everything for them, and not only were they idle, but they were putting their energy into being disruptive. So not only were they sucking energy from the momentum of everybody else, but they were actually putting energy into being disruptive. Verse 11 says this, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. I love that. Such a great description, right? And maybe in your workplace, you can identify somebody who's like this. Uh, this would be the kind of person who, and maybe it's you, maybe you find yourself a little bit stuck, maybe you find yourself always having a little sidebar conversation. You might be in a meeting with a bunch of people, but then you got to have like this little sidebar conversation, or there is a lot of gossip that goes on, and that maybe people who gossip, they constantly seek you out, and that might say something about you because you are maybe contributing to it. Uh, this week, I spent some time just with the Lord, and I was at the park, and these ladies were circling the park, and, you know, every now and then, they'd walk by, and I could hear the conversation, and the whole time, it's just gossip, gossip, gossip. It, they don't know how to communicate aside from just, I mean, it's, you might need to find a new walking partner, right? You might need to say, hey, this is, every time we get together, this is just what we do, and there's a gossip that goes on, or there's judging, or there's always evaluating the work, but not being a part of a solution. Now, let me tell you this. There's a big difference. Let me contrast that to the person who's a spiritual contributor, to one who's serving and loving and engaged. Or in your workplace, a person who's contributing, bringing value to the workplace without compromising their identity or their God. The person who does that, contributors, they are too busy doing their own work or their own job to worry about everybody else's contribution. They don't keep score. They're not saying, well, I do this much work, and look how I do it, and the quality of the work that I do, but look at everybody else. They're not doing that. They're just saying, listen, I'm, I'm so busy. My plate is so full. My contribution is so great that I'm so busy doing mine that I don't have time for the gossip. I don't have time for evaluating what everybody else should or shouldn't have done. It's not saying that if you're a manager in charge of people that you shouldn't evaluate and walk and coach. That's part of the job of management. But it's the person who says, I just see myself as a manager and there's no manager on their tag. They're more worried about what everybody else is or isn't doing at the blind spot of their own lack of contribution. See, any employer wants people saying, listen, I am so busy with my own job that I don't have time to evaluate everybody else's. And you know what? When you get people on board who are like that, the momentum carries itself. What would that be like in your family, among your children, if they weren't playing the comparison game with each other, right? Well, you always treat them that way, or I always do this, but you don't, take, you know, you don't see what I do. We become like the older of the lost sons found in Luke 15, who says, that son squandered all the wealth on prostitutes and wild living, but I've been here and look what I've done. See, so, you no, know, the contributor is so busy 
about their own job. They don't have time to compare with everybody else. They were being disruptive. They're not busy. They're busybodies. And I got to tell you that smart managers learn to listen to contributors differently than busybodies. The busybody will always seek out the manager and complain, well, you know, this is happening, but look what yeah, they did, and they did something wrong, and they'll do that. But after a while, a smart manager will just, they're, they're, they put up with it. They're just, oh, I got to listen to this. But when a contributor comes to that manager and says, hey, we've got a problem here, and for the good of the sake of the business or the company or the institution, I want to be part of the solution. Here's maybe something we can do. A smart manager will listen differently to that person. They put a higher value in. Why? because they identify that this person is contributing. They're not just simply consuming, carrying out a job for their own sake, but they're contributing value to their employer. They'll listen differently. They'll listen far more closely. So Paul is addressing this problem of idleness in the church, having a cognitive head knowledge, saying, I believe in faith up here, but my faith doesn't lead to action out there. I compartmentalize. And a problem in our world, really in our culture as well here in America, is that among churches, and I mean that among thousands and thousands of churches, there are so many who will say, I will have a cognitive belief up here, but there's rarely any fruit of the Spirit that comes out of my life that reaches out to those who are lost. I want it more like a country club. I want to receive. We are not a cruise ship as a church. We're a battleship. And that means everybody's got a role. Everybody's got a job. Everybody makes a contribution. And what was happening in Thessalonica, they said, well, the Lord can return at any time. And maybe we've missed out on it, but Paul dispels that. And yet they had been warned before. So what does Paul command the leaders in the church to do in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? In verse 6 and 14, he says, withdraw from those type of people. Withdraw from them. See, these are believers. He's not talking about people who are like checking out faith. They haven't bought in yet. They haven't like made a decision for Jesus. They don't really know who he is. He's talking about people who say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about them. And these believers have already been warned by Paul. In fact, if you flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he tells them this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. See, what's he saying? Listen, for a lot of us, the quality of your work, both in the church and in your workplace, is part of your witness. That you're an ambassador of Christ and the way that you work, if you are idle at work, it makes an impression about the quality of your faith in your life. On the contrary, when you are a one who brings value to your employer in such a way that you're not compromising your identity or your God, but you're bringing value to them, suddenly your reputation earns the respect of outsiders. Why? Because your work is part of your worship. Worship isn't just singing or what we do in here on a weekend. It's all that we do. We are worshipers. We are the church, and we worship in here. We corporately, we worship as we go out into our workplaces and our homes, and we gain the respect of outsiders. We're not being dependent on anybody. We're not freeloading. First Thessalonians 5.14 also warned them. Paul says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive 
Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone, including those who are idle and disruptive, right? We're being patient, but they need, at, they need to know. They need to be warned. So these are believers who had already been warned in Paul's first book to the church at Thessalonica. And now in his second book, he moves from warning them to commanding them. He moves from we urge you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5 to we command now in verse 12. Look with me again at verse 12. Such people, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So those of you who are active, who are involved, who are serving, who are loving, who are honoring the Lord and you are being diligent, don't tire of that. In fact, in the face of those who are being idle and disruptive, don't grow weary in the good you're doing. But continue on, endure, whatever the circumstances, persecution or not, endure, keep on keeping on. He commands them. He says that we command you. So they've been warned previously in the book. Now they're being commanded to stop being idle, to get out of idle, move back into drive, and get moving. So when warning doesn't work, withholding relationship is the next step. And that sounds so bad. That sounds like, seriously, like, like withhold relationship? What, what is Paul talking about? Is that like isolating people? It doesn't mean that we expel people from the church, okay? It's not a rejection that leads to expulsion. That's not what Paul is saying, and I want to be very clear that you hear that. However, there are some things that this passage tells us we're supposed to do. Number two, we are to identify them. In verse 14, he says, take special note I love that picture. Let's like write their names down. Like make a list. Here's the idle and disruptive people. It sounds horrible, right? But what happens, is, think about it, in your workplace and other places, the people who are contributing, you, you know who those who are being idle and disruptive are. He's saying, listen, take note, identify them because there's a problem there. Don't ignore the problem, but at least identify it. And Third, we're to keep away from them. In verse 6, he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, here's the command, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Wow. We're to identify them. We're to keep away from them. Why? There's a dynamic in which if they're idle and disruptive, they want to suck us into that downward spiral, right? You don't want to get sucked into that. You want to be a person who believes in upward spirals, like an eagle who soars, that that happens. You get carried up. You get in the right power, the lasting power, the right momentum, not ones that leads to idle, but one that keeps driving. So he says, identify them, keep away from them. And oftentimes a person gets hung up in hurts, habits, uh, and hangups, and oftentimes even through addiction, they can be those who depend on other people and they'll look for the heart that will codependently rescue them. And they will appeal time and again to your spiritual nature and your generosity and your good heart. And they will say, please, I need you to come rescue me. And they will lie and cheat and steal or use spiritual manipulation in a way that doesn't ever get them out of idle and back into drive. It just enables them to stay in idle indefinitely. This is one of those situations Paul is talking about here where helping actually hurts because you just become an enabler. 
Helping doesn't help them. Helping actually hurts. It's misguided charity. Why? Why would he say all these things? Why take special note? Why identify them? Why keep away from them? Why understand it as a situation where sometimes helping hurts? And it's this reason, if you hear nothing else today, catch this. Because being unavailable awakens the awareness that their disruptive or lazy behavior, it creates a gap. See, sometimes they're not going to hear it or understand that what they're doing isn't okay until they understand that their behavior creates a relational gap, that what they're doing is not okay. If you have little children, you understand what this is all about. When we had our boys, we had three and three years, so they were like little all at the same time, and there were times that the temper tantrums would kick in, and they would start to fuss, and they would throw themselves down the ground, they'd wail, and they'd, you know, whine, and they would just, you know, fuss about all these things, and we were like, what do you do? I mean, as a parent, what do you do? You're like in the middle of a store, you're middle, you know, your house, whatever. What do you do with a kid who just starts throwing a temper tantrum? And you try to reason with them, and they just they can't even hear it because they're wailing and fussing so much, and they can't even hear it, and you try to help them, and you finally just give in and want to give them what they want. Well, kids learn real quick, and they'll take advantage of that really, really quick. So one of the ways, and I'm sure there's many that we felt were helpful for us, was the issue of a timeout. Now, there's you got to be careful with this because sometimes kids use timeout because they want to be alone. Please send me to my room where I have video games. Please don't make me do that job. I'd rather go be by myself. And that's not the best way to handle a timeout. But in a way that we felt effective and found to be a timeout, when one of our children was throwing a temper tantrum, we would just come in. We'd, they'd be fussing and crying. We'd scoop them up. We'd take them into the room. We'd put them, like, in the crib or whatever. And then we, would, we wouldn't even have a lecture or conversation. We'd just put them in there, and then we'd walk out, and we'd shut the door. And they wail, and they fuss, and they're just screaming, they're shaking the crib, you know, the, the bars of it. And, you know, after a while, they kind of quiet down. So we would peek in the door and be real positive. Hey, are you ready to come rejoin all of us? They wail, they cry, they fuss, and shake the you know, bars of the crib. And then, you know, of course, oh, I'm sorry, I guess you're not ready yet to join the rest of you. Close the door. After a while, they calm down, quiet down. You open the door. Hey. Are you ready to come out and rejoin the rest of the family? All of a sudden they realize, huh, fussing won't get me what I want. Bad behavior has consequences. There's a gap. A gap is my behavior has caused a gap. And so then they would be like, yeah, I'm ready. And so we pick them up and we bring them out. And guess what? The temper tantrum stopped. The fussing stopped because it just found out it didn't work. Why? When you and I say, right now, your disruption is sufficient that we're going to let you know that we're not available to you and that being unavailable to you awakens the awareness that your disruptive behavior causes a gap. It creates it. It's a warning. It's not a punishment. It's not a rejection. It's a warning. There's nothing else that's going to cause the awakening to happen for you and it's funny, there are times that you know, our kids would fuss, and maybe you have little kids, and, and you experience this, but our children would, you know, fuss, and they'd come in and say, Daddy, you know, Matthew stole my little you know, toy or whatever. And I, I would just pretend like, literally, like you're speaking a foreign language. Like, I get this confused look on my face. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't understand fussing. Yeah, but Daddy, Matthew took my, you know, and then, I, sorry, could, maybe could you use a Zachary voice? Dad, Matthew took my... They change it. Okay, well, now let's deal with that. And what do they learn? Fussing doesn't get you what you want. 
But we'd make it almost like a game. Like, I'm so, I just, wow, I just don't understand. Like they're speaking a foreign language. Why? It lets them know that disruptive behavior like that creates a gap. And when they're aware of it, now we can deal with how to get out of idle and stuck and disruptive and be a contributor instead of a consumer. For parents of adult children, I want to let you know if you've got an adult child that you find is, is living like they want and maybe they're freeloading off you, these same steps are very effective for adult children, that they understand their responsibility, that ongoing help, as big as your heart is, ongoing help will actually paralyze your adult child, that they won't ever have to take responsibility. And Paul is saying, listen, when they've done that, your helping potentially hurts. It's not going to bring about as much help as you give. It's not going to bring about the change that you are hoping for. Being unavailable for a season brings about the awareness that their behavior is causing a gap. And suddenly, you're not playing that game with them anymore. Let me tell you, if you oversee employees, you will continue to experience what you allow. If you allow the sniping and the back-talking and the backbiting to go on, then you're going to continue to experience that until you address it. If you allow the gossip to go on, all those sidebar conversations and going around lines of authority, if you allow all that to happen, you're going to continue experiencing that until you address it. And sometimes the conversation has to get worse before it gets better. But how do you get somebody who's a busybody? in the workplace? How do you get them to go from being a consumer and a busybody and distracting everybody else from doing their jobs to being a contributor? Well, Paul is saying, this is how you do it. Organizationally, church or not, this is how you do it. You make yourself unavailable to that so that they're aware that there's a gap. These same steps may lead to correction in a person. Now, here's the idea. The idea is correcting the direction of their life. You correct it so their life is going the right way. They go from being a consumer and you're correcting to become a contributor. It's not punishment or simply dismissing them. And all too often, that's what happens, right? We don't work to correct, we just dismiss. And Paul is saying these are the kind of things that allow correcting. Now sometimes, don't get me wrong, there will be people who will say, listen, I talked to this person, this person, this person, this person, and and nobody heard me. And that might be the time to have the corrective conversation, right? Because you're not busy. You're being a busybody. And let's talk about how to correct that so that you go from being a consumer to being a contributor. Don't just tell all the problems. Be part of the solution. You should be so busy in your job as a son or a daughter, you should be so busy in your job as an employee or as an employer that you don't have time to worry about everybody else doing their job. You actually become a very good manager in that way. But I want you to know today that if you've got a son or daughter who's stuck, if you find yourself in your own life, you're going through maybe some grief and you say, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm stuck. I'm an idol. I have paused. I used to be a driver. I used to be fully in motion, and somewhere along the lines, I just, entitlement snuck in, and I thought I was, you know, deserved something, like maybe got a little bit of a rock star mentality, or like I got crushed by tragedy, and it just feels like I have come to a point where I have stopped. I'm paralyzed. How do I get going again? I want to let you know that there is hope 
that there is an idle cure, that there is hope for you. Sometimes it's your hurts, habits, or hang-ups. Sometimes it's grief. Sometimes it's life. Sometimes it becomes laziness. But I want you to know that something like CR, Celebrate Recovery, helps people walk from being consumers to being uh, spiritual contributors. That they basically say, we will give you some life skills, some tools to get in motion again, and you don't have those tools right now, and we'll come along and partner with you and not tell you what to do, but we will partner with you and help you get some tools in your toolbox so that you can get out of neutral and get back into drive. And we want you to contribute and serve and humble yourself like Jesus Christ did in humbling himself, becoming flesh, saying there is a gap, there is a separation between a holy God and humanity who are trapped in sin, but I'm going to serve them so that gap becomes sealed and we can be in relationship once again. Well, how did Paul do it? How did he break entitlement in his life by his own example? I mean, you got to realize this is the Apostle Paul. There were only 12 apostles. And the Apostle Paul, and he's the guy who says, listen, I am the Apostle Paul. You don't understand what my title means. My title means I saw Jesus. My title means that Jesus specifically called me into ministry. And now he's way up around Macedonia, and he's working with the church in Thessalonica, and he's saying, listen, if anybody's entitled to come in and simply preach and leave and have everybody give to them, it's the Apostle Paul. Well, how did he break entitlement? If anybody could be entitled, he certainly deserved it. Well, number one, he was busy day and night contributing as an example of what is normal for all followers of Christ to do. See, how often have you gotten home from work and like, Whew, I worked all day. And you're like, I just need like five minutes of downtime. You know, whatever, it turns into like two hours, right? So you take your five minutes of you know, downtime. Paul's saying like, I worked all day and all night because I wouldn't want to be a burden to you. I want to model for you that there are people all over the place who serve and who love and who contribute. And there are many of you who you do, you work all day and then you volunteer as a contributor at church and you celebrate one hour at church on Sunday morning and you volunteer the other hour and it breaks entitlement. That there are times that you and I, we do, we carry our, our work out in our workplace, but we also serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we say we are the church as we're working in our job and we're the church as we're parenting in our home and we are the church as we're serving in our community and serving our church. And there are so many of you who do that. You set an example for your kids that church is not just a one hour, 20 minute consumption of time but that you celebrate one hour and you serve another hour, you contribute as a part of the family. There are things you might do during the week that volunteer and contribute, and you're training your children that this is a family value. Young people right now are dying for meaningful tasks. They're saying, please give me some reason to come to church. See, if we hand everything to like high school students, if we just say, hey, you come to church and we got everything for you and we will just hand you the best program, the best preaching, and we're gonna hand it all to you, and after a while they're gonna go like, honestly, Sounds like you need me. I don't really need you. They're saying there's not a real reason for me to be at the church. You're saying, like, wait and be the church when you become an adult. But there are people, young people who are dying right now for meaningful tasks and a chance to contribute with their creative excellence right now. 
their abilities right now, their resources right now, as the church, even though they are young. You know what a lot of our high schoolers have planned to do for the 25th anniversary? They have planned to, to serve in the children's department so people who've been serving in the church for 25 years can come to the one service. They're saying it is an honor to give up our right to receive, and we will contribute so that we can honor other people above ourselves. A bunch of high schoolers are willing to do that in our children's department on the 25th anniversary. And they are the church right now, even though they are young. A 16-year-old Chris Lamera comes during the week on the summer break here, and he volunteers uh, every now and then with our uh, facilities department, and he's just doing all sorts of things here around the facility that just need to be done. And here's a 16-year-old who could be enjoying the summer, doing, you know, swimming and playing games and do whatever, but says, I will come and be a part of the church. I'll use my hands and my heart and my abilities in whatever way is needed. And it's just awesome. There's a whole crew of students who have come back from Hume Lake who are ready to mentor younger teens. They're saying, I don't want it to be all about me. There needs to be a reason that I show up at church on Sunday morning that I need to set an example and a model, and I need to pour into the life of another teenager who's younger than I am. They want to serve. They want to help. We've got adult singles who work out in the corporate world or in the workplace all during the week. They work all their days, but then they serve in every meaningful ministry in this church in ways that they can, and they're giving their contribution. We've got dads and moms who parent their kids all week long and then come and say, I will contribute and invest in the lives of those who are younger than me on the weekends as well. We've got teachers who teach kids all week long, except in the summer. And then... Then they come and they say, I'm not burned out on kids. I actually am willing to use my expertise in that area to serve with children or junior or senior high to invest in the next generation. We've got, uh, you know, highly pro trained professionals who are unbelievable in their areas of work. We've got really excellent blue-collar workers who serve and have expertise that a white-collar person wouldn't even begin to understand. And yet those people, they come together and they say, we will worship in community group together. We will come together as the church. There's a common bonding, and we'll serve in that, or we will serve in a lot of other uh, areas in our church. We had a whole group of um, people who were out at National Outdoor Night. What was it called? Like, a, you know, like Night out, thank you, that was it. So National Night Out, and they said, we're going to serve, and so we go out in the community this week from Sun Grove Church, and we just want to build relationships and promote what's going on at Sun Grove out on National Night Out, and these are just, you know, great people saying, hey, we'll, we're extroverted, we love that, we'll go do that, and they did. Your creative excellence and your willing hands are needed for a lost world to find freedom and truth. We've got parents who parent all week long, or maybe they've graduated from parenting, they've now got adult children, but they're willing to come and work and serve at respite night with special needs children so that parents of special needs children, many of whom do not go to our church, have a night out to be able to hold their family together, to run some errands, to go on a date, and it's part of our extension as a church to meet the needs and love people the least of these, even, in our world. Well, how do we do it? We move from I deserve to I serve. We break entitlement. We move away. We move away from saying, I deserve for the church to do this, or I deserve, you know, for culture to do this, or I deserve for the government to do this, or I deserve, you know, for parents to do this. We've got a whole culture right now, even of young people, who are saying, listen, I deserve to have right now in my 20s what my parents have worked 40 years to have. 
and they're putting that entitlement on a credit card that will bind them for years. We need to break entitlement in our culture. We need to get freedom from financial bondage. We need to get freedom from thinking that you and I are rock stars when we're not. We're the church. We exist for the world. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. Why? Why do we do all this? What did Paul learn? Number two, breaking entitlement returns us to peace in all times and in every way. Look with me at verse 16. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. I want to pause right there. In all times. How would you like to have peace in all times? What happens? Our peace gets so easily disruptive when we're entitled. We think we deserve and we don't get. And so what happens? Our peace is shattered. What happens in times of persecution? There are Christian people across our world even making national news right now who are being beheaded simply because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not based on their race or their cultural differences, but simply their faith in Jesus Christ. And they are going to the point of being martyred. How do you have peace in all times, in all circumstances, in every way? Paul learned that when he got beat up for his faith, and he did, that he could still have peace because he broke entitlement. I got to tell you, the freeloading life is not peaceful. It's not. We think it is. Let everybody else care for you and everyone else contribute and everyone else, while you're an idol and just taking it easy, let everyone else take responsibility for you and your actions and your behavior. And it's not a peaceful life. It's not. A peaceful life is one where you are being a contributor and say in all seasons, in every way, in all times, I humble myself because Christ humbled himself for me to take my shame and my guilt and my stuff upon himself and pay for it on a cross and then raise to new life, being God, closing the gap that my entitlement separated as I sinned, right? We say that's the kind of person that I want to be. At the end, verse 17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So at the end, he basically, you know, some people read this and think he just signs like, okay, instead of having to scribe as I dictate, take everything down, I now just signed it, love Paul. But that's not what he's doing. He's saying, listen, remember I wrote you a letter and then in the middle, somebody else wrote a letter saying the day of the Lord has already come and it shattered your peace. He's saying, listen, I am showing you through handwriting analysis, this is how I write. This from here on out is how you're going to know when I communicate to you, you'll know it actually comes from me because here's my handwriting analysis. He is giving them peace for the future, peace in what they can experience right now, that this is not a rumor, but it is true, and it's the word of God. He's saying, this is how I write. He clarifies any confusion in future communication. Some of us need to clarify where our signature goes in our communication. Because for some of us, it's a head knowledge. And we believe up here, but we're not signing our name to it. We're not saying, God, let fruit be born in my life. I've been a con you know, consumer, not a contributor. And God is going to say, the faith that is authentic is that which bears fruit. 
And that's why Paul says, listen. That's why we warn somebody who gets idle. That's why we warn somebody who's disruptive because there's way too much at stake. We never want them to think that a head knowledge faith will save them before a holy God. But that an authentic faith says, God, I'm going to model my life like you, and it will bear fruit because of what you did and what you're doing in me and out through me. That God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. My job is to unleash that. Let me help you serve the Lord with your creativity, your gifting, your service as we, the church, reach a lost world. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you just to take a moment and just, if you say, I have put my faith in Christ, I have received the forgiveness of my sins, I want you to take a moment and be honest with God and evaluate, are you in a season right now where you've been idle? Maybe you felt like you've paid your dues and you've relaxed a bit. Maybe you have not continued to do good. You've not... uh, you've tired of doing what is good and you've slowed down and you've gotten into idol and and God is drawing your heart to say get and drive again let's go there's too much at stake time is short my return is near and he's drawing you to himself maybe some of you in this room you have not made a decision for Jesus you've never put your faith in Christ you haven't received the forgiveness of your sins you're not guaranteed eternal life gathered back together with the Lord And yet today you're realizing that Jesus Christ left heaven, became flesh, lived a perfect life, was willing to take your sin and guilt and shame upon himself on the cross as he paid God's righteous wrath against sin. And today you're saying, God, I put my faith in what you did. I believe that you rose from the dead and that you have closed that gap that my sin created. And God, I want to step into that. I want to say yes to you. I want to put my faith in what you did on the cross. And if that's you today, then you simply pray a prayer right where you're seated. Just pray it. God hears you like this. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. Free me from being condemned by my sin. I can't thank you enough for bearing all of my shame and owning it like it was your shame. I ask you to give me your Holy Spirit and walk me into new life. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant it right where you're seated, will you just raise up your hand? Anywhere around the room, we've got some people who'd like to give you some information if you made that decision for the first time. Just hold your hand up high enough because we've got some people who'd like to give you a little pamphlet. We've got some emotion over there. Anywhere else, just around the room, that today that was you making a decision for Jesus saying today is the day of salvation. Awesome. Believers in the room, just being honest with God, just ask him, God, what's my next step? What do you want me to do to get out of being idle? Maybe it's that you got to find a new walking partner. Maybe for you, you need to stop the people who walk up to you at work and are busy bodies, and you need to intentionally make some separation there so that you're doing your work and your witness, and it's helping them understand there's a gap. You might want to circle back with that believing person and tell them why you've been unavailable and just to help them get out of idle and back into drive. God, we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for what you're doing among us as a church. We're so grateful as we look forward to the next 25 years, how you're going to continue to work and move and be faithful pending your return. God, we love you, and we're so grateful. We celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen. Son Grove Church, you give it up for what God's doing among us.
Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.